I was raised by a white family in the Midwest, uh, same as you. Mm -hmm. But I was raised in a state-certified foster home. We fostered over 36 kids over a seven-year period. Uh, My parents have adopted eight kids from six different countries. I didn't see it as different. I didn't see it as unique. But I would have these moments where I would see people see us. And that's when I realized, oh, my family is really, really different. Jason and Yvonne Lee, wife, husband, father, mother, actors, producers, and seekers, educators, explorers of identity. You're listening to Lager Lane Spirits, a delicious podcast where we invite you into our living room for a family spirit symposium, a real talk meeting of the minds over reverent cocktails. Join us as we dive back in time to examine the legacy of our ancestors that have shaped the stories of our shared cultural history. You can find all of our cocktail recipes and show notes on lageralanespirits.com. And as always, please enjoy. Responsibly. Welcome to episode three of Lager Lane Spirits. This episode is a three-part series where we deep dive into three very different adoption stories to explore the topic of identity and origin. What are little boys made of? Snips and snails and puppy dog tails. That's what little boys are made of. At least, that's what we were told. This, this is Origins. Hello, and welcome to tonight's episode of Lager Lane Spirits Podcast. What's up, friends? This season, Jason and I are exploring all things identity. We will revisit moments in American history through the lens of our own family's roots and the legacy of the generations that have come before us. Tonight, we are changing things up. Right, Jason? Mm. But before we dive into that, let's dive into our drink. What are you making, babe? Uh, tonight I'm making the old-fashioned rye whiskey cocktail. It's origins in Louisville at the Pandemus Club are largely undisputed, and for that, I am grateful. It's a truthful drink. It doesn't disappoint. It holds to the past and keeps us rooted in the present. Its identity is solid. Well, that's not really entirely true, babe. The location might be solid, but if I remember correctly, as for the bartender who actually created the whiskey old-fashioned, there are three possible candidates, yes? Hey, 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 no, hey, wait, hey, hey, you're popping my punchline. I was getting around to that. Yes, there, it's okay. That's okay. There are three potential inventors of this beverage, uh, three fathers, if you will. Uh, I see what see you what did, did there. No, no, no. Actually, yeah, yeah, you right. meant to say four fathers, if you will, didn't you? The forefathers. Four forefathers. Of Not the forefathers F-O-R-E, of the old but as fashioned. Four F O U R. There's four. We can keep it at F O R E, and we can keep it the three fathers, no, and no, that no, will be four. a story for another episode. Isn't it four? It is four. Yes. F O U R. 
Well, what we're talking about, uh, friends, is that you, uh, you guys know I was adopted. I have an adopted father. My adopted parents got divorced, so I have a stepfather. I have a birth father, of course. Uh, I've done a lot of research into my my origin story, my 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 roots, and I recently found out that I met my birth mom twenty years ago, and she told me who at the time who she thought the birth father was. And when I met him, he believed he believed the same story. Well, it turns out that that was a lie. She incorrectly identified who my biological father was. Um, my birth dad is not my birth dad, the guy who I met seven years ago. My birth dad's another man. And you want to know how I found out all, the, all of this? Uh, Ancestry.com. Little little plug for Ancestry.com. This podcast was born from the notion of all that I found out about my ancestors, Yvonne's ancestors, people I thought were my ancestors. By the click of a button, I learned my legacy is not my legacy, but something else. I have a different origin story than what I thought. Oh, my goodness. That was crazy. (laughs) Finding out that you had a different dad than the dad that you thought you had. So there is your... Adopted father than the birth father that you thought you had. Yeah. And also the stepfather that you had. And then yes. the actual birth father that you had. Yes. We have a lot to unpack tonight. <laughs> <sighs> yes, we do. Yes, we do. And honestly, Folks, if you're listening and you need to rewind that, please just go ahead and rewind because honestly, we're still trying to figure it out too. It's all complicated. <laughs> and if you know your own history's family, somebody's got to tell you to you at least three times to, to figure it out. But our first guests of our three-part series will be Hank and Sue Ann Fortner of Adopt Together. Through the lens of what it means to adopt, we'll discuss identity and origins from the Ruta to the Tuta. Right, Jason? (laughs) If you say so. Yes, I say so. Of course I say so. Our podcast, Right My Love, is about conversation and cocktails. If we ever needed one, this is the time. So let me tell you what's in this here old-fashioned. Hmm. The ingredients of this of this old fashioned uh, tonight's old fashioned, I basically did two ounces of Dickel George Dickel Rye whiskey. I did uh, three teaspoons of simple syrup. I did uh, several dashes of bitters because I can't. You know, people often say you know only do two or three uh, dashes of bitters. I actually love bitters, uh, so I did several dashes of bitters. And for this uh, cocktail, I did a couple splashes of water to open up the rye a little bit because rye is a bit more, I find it to be a bit more on the aggressive side of whiskeys rather than a bourbon or, or a cognac also. So I like to open up the rye a little bit more. If any of you listening uh, are at home and want to join us, please pause uh, right here and jump over to lagrelanespirits.com where you can grab the recipe. So maybe you have your old fashioned, my love. Uh, why don't we sit back and get a little more comfortable? To identity and origins. To creating legacy. Cheers, babe. Cheers. So, so what's the what's the verdict? <laughs> 
You want? This is good. Yeah. This is really, really great. You know, when I first took a sip of this, I was reminded of uh, Chicago. Yes. I don't know. I felt like I took a sip of Chicago. Yes. <laughs> Living there, I thought, ooh, all of a sudden I felt all homey and <laughs> I, and hugged. I remember when we first met in Chicago in the to, mm-hmm. back in the back in the day, and uh, we'd go to bars after doing plays, and uh, you would order. Uh, uh, whiskey drinks, and I was like, "Oh, that she's really cool. I'm gonna have to really ho- hopefully up my game so that she could." Oh, uh, uh, Callan like and, and and ginger ginger ale. That's what it was. No, it was Jack. And I think you were, no. I think it was um, Makers. Oh, just, Makers oh and goodness, Ginger. Makers Mark wrong. and Ginger. Yes, was your, Makers yeah, and Ginger. Makers drink. Mark and Ginger. That's what it was. Yes. Okay, I'm much more fancy now. All right. What I also <laughs> love about the old fashioned uh, before the 1860s. I'm sorry. I was a history major. I, I I love stories and I love I love history. But before the, the 1860s, every cocktail really in America was basically this. It was basically uh, the spirit, often cognac. It was the spirit, sugar, bitters, and water. After the 1860s into the 1870s, other uh, liqueurs were introduced, like absinthe. And, but but it led a lot of a, a generation of drinkers to walk into bars and say, you know what? Give me what my old man used to drink. Give me what my grandfather used to drink. Make me something old fashioned. And that name then stuck to what we now drink as the old fashioned. And so there's something very original and origin centric about the old fashioned that grounds us in the now and in the here for me. And as we explore these themes of identity false reveals, lies, and truth. I can think of nothing better to sip on than a well-poured old-fashioned cocktail. Yes, cheers to that. Are you ready to spill the old-fashioned tea on what happened? Maybe. No, yes. Yeah, but did you like my joke? (laughs) Oh, I did. I did. But I'm, I'm, you know, honestly, I'm nervous. I'm I'm nervous about about this reveal. I know. You know, I know we are, you are. We are storytellers. We are sharing, and this is probably you know, as actors, we hide behind characters often to express our truths in make believe mm-hmm. circumstances. This is you know, the first time that the third act reveal of my life has written itself, and I'm processing what that is. And so, yeah, you know, well, yeah, I'm 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 ready to spill the old fashioned tea. Th- this is <laughs> very brave of you. And this season, we are exploring all of the different facets that make up a person's identity. For those of you who are listening, we've already talked about cultural identity, racial identity, and immigrant identity. But what really started this whole exploration in the first place was actually a breakthrough in, Jason, your search for your biological identity, And uh, by now, our listeners know that you were adopted as a baby by a loving white family in Mankato, Minnesota, and you started your search for your biological parents around uh, age 16, right? Uh, Yeah, 15, 16. I uh, I was searching for my African-American roots. I was raised by a loving family. I was, as our audience knows, I, I was born in Lincoln, Nebraska, raised in Mankato, Minnesota, in Galesburg, Illinois, and Decatur, Illinois, and uh, in the 70s. And I was raised by a loving white family, a loving family of Caucasian individuals who I love deeply. But I always, as my Afro grew out in the 70s, I was like, wait a second, you know, there's something a little different here. And so I went searching as I got older 
for my black side. It just so happens that my uncle, rest in peace, David Andreas, was uh, adopted as well. And so I had, I had wonderful conversations with him about being adopted and what that meant and what that means for our family. But he, in his truth, what, he was a, a white gentleman as well. And so the racial component of things really factored in for the beginning of my search in the mid-80s as a teenage light-skinned black man in, in Chicago. Yeah, so I went searching for my blackness and I found my German Jewish, uh, Germans from Russian, from Russia, the Volga River history. My birth mother was born in Lincoln, Nebraska, and she descended from Germans who settled along the, the Volga River in Russia. They came over to the States in between the 1880s and the, and the 1920s. And how I found that out was I went to Lincoln, Nebraska. I was living out here in Los Angeles at the time. Yvonne, you and I were dating. Mm-hmm. And I was driving back. You were in Chicago, and I was driving back to Chicago to see you, but also to do a play at the Goodman. Yeah, I remember. And, of course, that great drive from L.A. to Chicago takes you right through. The upper route takes you right through Lincoln, Nebraska, actually. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I have some time. Let me stop in Lincoln, Nebraska. And I stopped at – for I, <laughs> I drove into Lincoln, Nebraska, and I, I, went, I went in for some lunch, actually. I, I didn't have the thought of it. I was like, let me just drive around Lincoln, right? And I found the Department of Health and Human Services in downtown Lincoln, Nebraska. And for 18 bucks, you could sign a sign a piece of paper, and they would open. They, they would reveal your your adoption papers. Uh, everything in in the state of Nebraska for adopted individuals, all adoptions in Nebraska were closed before 1977. Mm-hmm. So I had no access to original biological information at all. My my adopted parents had some access, had some parts of the story in place, but they didn't have names and they didn't have the full story. And that's something that I was really curious about. So I, I did that, filled out the paperwork, went, did the play in, in Chicago, came back to L.A. And six months later, my birth mom called me. That's how I found her. Yeah, and the part of that story, too, is right, is that when you actually met your birth mom, she told you the story that her mom said, he's looking for you, right? Yes. This, the story goes biological grandmother. So my birth mom was a child. She was 17 years old when I was born. And so her mom signed all the papers. And it turned out that the phone number that she had, the grandmother that she had in 1971 was the same phone number that she had in 2002. So they instantly went to her because she was the adult at the time and, and, and gave her the information. The state of Nebraska gave her the information. Then she called her daughter and said, yes, I think he's, he's looking for you and you should give him a call. Here's the information. If you, here's his information, if you want to do so. And then there was the lie. And then the lie. And all during yeah. pandemic, you were <laughs> you were doing massive deep dives into your family tree that sent you to Louisiana, Oklahoma, lynchings, Russian czars, 1700s, 1800s. Every day you were telling me new information about this and that, and books were flying into yeah. our house every day, trips from 
gifts from Amazon all the time. Yeah, sadly, we were part of uh, of Amazon's ability to uh, fly into space. Yes. Uh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> and... I mean, the, the, you, the history major, was buzzing with like such incredible intensity. And it's even where the inspiration for this first season of the podcast came from. And then one day. Yeah. You know, so the, inf- the information that m- my birth mother gave me, she told me the name of the, bo- the boy, the man who she was dating at the time. And uh, that information led me to all of that history that you were talking about. It, it, it led me to her history of the Germans in Russia, the, the Volga Germans, they call them. Uh, it led me to, through Ancestry.com, it led me to his, his roots, who I thought was my birth father. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I had his name and I could plug his name into Ancestry.com. It led me to his family tree that opened up and revealed Louisiana and Oklahoma and Nebraska, why his family tree, which most a lot of African-Americans have this story in their family tree of leaving the South at a certain point and either moving north or west or west and then north. It was phenomenal history. And like you said, I was a history major and, and I majored in African-American history and I minored in theater. So I'm a storyteller mm-hmm. by education. Mm. And so it was just all, all fascinating. And I was so sure uh, of this history because I met him. I, we talked on the phone. I wrote him a letter. I found his address. We, we shared letters. We shared pictures. We, we talked. And he believed the lie, too. He was told the lie first. He was told the lie before he went to go serve our country in Vietnam. And so he believed the story for 50 years. I believed it for 20. Mm. I had no reason to doubt him because he was like, yeah, you're our son. He's like, we're not together. I don't have any relationship with her now. But yeah, I knew you were coming. And and one thing that was very touching that he shared with me, he said, you know, I I always because I, I had to I had to re- release him of the lie. He I had to tell him once I right. once DNA showed that he was not the birth father. I felt as a you know man to man at that point. I'm almost fifty myself right now. He had to know, and so he said, you know a very heartbreaking moment. He said, I, you know, as when I first met you, Jason, he said, you know, it, it, it floored me that I could have a son like you. And that was just such a loaded heartfelt, you know, moment that we, that we shared. But as we've talked about, a lot of people have talked about the, the past year about following the science, the science don't lie, believe in the science. So I took the DNA test and it indicated and other, uh, my uh, aunt, popped up. Some first cousins popped up. One of them lives out here in California. Um, so my birth father was not who she said it was. Yeah. No, I remember when you told me that and I, I just was like, I can't, every time I thought, thought we got to the end, there was, it actually wasn't the end. It was, it became infinity. <laughs> uh, so Jason, um, how did finding that missing piece affect your identity or, or what you thought was your identity? I don't think I've ever yeah. asked you that question before. So it's kind of interesting to hear yeah, what you're going to say. That's a great question. And, uh, I think one of the, <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> one of the, uh, one of the fascinating things that I've found about this is that my running joke is I spit in vials for fun right now with, I've done almost every ancestry test you could possibly do. And one of them, 
the late great Chadwick Boseman talked about this. He did African ancestry when he was uh, studying for and preparing for uh, Black Panther. And so I did that same test. And what was shocking is that uh, the results showed no, from the paternal line, no discernible African ancestry, uh, uh, which was like, wait a second, I'm, I'm, out, I'm out here looking for my, my black roots. What are you talking about? I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a light-skinned black man. What, what, what do you mean? No, no Africa from the paternal line? Mm. And the science says, basically, if there's a close proximity to Europe, Europe, the, your, the European DNA removes the possibility of finding the, if it's close enough. And by close, I mean like grandfather or great grandfather. Cause obviously I have a whole bunch of DNA from Northern Europe, from my maternal line, but paternal, there's a strong line of Scottish as well in there, which makes sense from the new birth father, the real birth father story who uh, was from South Georgia, uh, North Carolina, South Carolina and South Georgia. And that erases the, or not erase, but I mean that minimizes Doesn't erase the it, but for, this, for this, for the science, they say, yes, it, for the, for, for African ancestry's DNA test, the reveal said, if you have this proximity to Europe, we cannot isolate where in Africa or West Africa, South Africa, wherever, uh. North Africa, where you come from. Now, 23andMe, they all have the ability to track Regions And so, you know, as in most African-Americans, there is a strong West African presence in, in, in my DNA, according to these tests. And they've isolated, isolated it all as Nigeria, West Africa, Nigeria, Mali, Cameroon, Congo. But African ancestry was saying at the time, this was four years ago, the science might have changed. But they were saying back then that they could not isolate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Af- African ancestry. So. What was fascinating about that with the with the lie and the big reveal in my research on ancestry from both gentlemen's perspectives, the story fit. Mm-hmm. So I want to say that again. The story of both of these individuals, one whose people came were, were Baltimore by way of Louisiana, by way of Oklahoma. The other gentleman who was North Carolina, the Carolinas, and South Georgia. Both stories fit. So how it affected my identity is I found my African roots. And I've always identified as an first as an adopted child because that was my first sense of identity. But then as I started to form my own concept about what it means to be a black man in America, I strongly identify as, as such. Mm-hmm. And so to find that lens even through a lie made me feel whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think what's so interesting, Jason, that what you have found is that because you, you're adopted and so you were urged on to find out who you are, there are so many Black people who don't even have the information that you have to even be able to make those kinds of... Um, to be able to even understand, like, I, okay, I'll use myself as an example. Like, I've never done it. Please you keep do. telling me to do it. I know that there's a box you in your little area that, that I've given to you in our house that says 23 and me. 23 and, and me I should is probably for you. Taking it. So, Whenever you're so, ready. Yes. I'm just, it's just so crazy. So, um, I, what, <laughs> yes, so. It is. You're, 
just, I know we have one picture of your, who we know now is your birth dad. Was he, was he, do you imagine him like, it's kind of hard to tell from these kind of older pictures, but that he's a light skinned man, light skinned no. black man. No, it's hard to tell. Uh, first, it's hard to tell, but second, uh, my understanding from other family members who who have started to populate my websites. You know, that's the thing about DNA tests. You know, once the you know, the, the DNA relatives start coming in, and 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 I, I you know, I've got the. To, to go racial for a second, I've got the whiter than white in upstate Washington from the German side. And I've got the blacker than black from South Georgia and, and, and Northern Florida and everywhere in between. There's a, a Johnny Pitts has a book called Afropean. And, and really my DNA represents everything that that term Afropean, African and European, of course, but everything that that term represents is embedded in my DNA. And so that's given me a newfound sense of identity Mm-hmm. As well, um, not, I'm not going Tiger Woods with it. You know, I'm not, it's, <laughs> it's not Cablin Asian. I'm calling it Afropean because that's what Johnny Pitts did in his studies of of Black Europe, and and I, and and I dig that because it really I, I embrace my German roots, I embrace my my Russian roots, I embrace my West African and African roots. That for me is what makes America, okay. right? Jason, I'm just curious. I know some of these, some of this, but I think it would be interesting for the people who are listening, like if you're willing to share this much. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your relationship with Mike and and what what that was like? I guess where it with is my, now with, for you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. With, with the, the the gentleman who I thought was my birth father, we became friends. You know, he he uh, is uh, is is in you know Kansas, and he's a Chiefs fan, and I'm a Bears fan, and he clowns he clowns me often for being a Bears fan, <laughs> and uh, and I can't clown him because the Chiefs, you know. And so we, I mean, you know, sports, dude, dude stuff, you know. We 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 connected, and uh, yeah, if if, you, if they got Patrick Mahomes, and we finally got rid of Mitchell Trubisky, that you got to take the razzes, right? You got to take the curves with the straights, as August Wilson said. We connected. We became friends. Uh, we never, we haven't had the chance to meet in person, but we became friends, emails, phone calls, letter sharing. And, and that's still cool. Yvonne, I told our daughter Grace this story, uh, that I was going to have to reveal this Uh, truth mm -hmm. to him. And she gave me a hug and said, that's weird, dad. You know, what are you going to say? And I was like, I don't know, daughter. I, what, what do you think I should say? She's like, well, what does it mean? If he's not your birth father, maybe she said, maybe he's your godfather. That was and so I was beautiful. like, that is beautiful. That's from the mouth of babes. And I, and I told him that. And was he was like, like, Jason, we did something right. <laughs> yeah, we did something. We've done something right so far. Absolutely. <laughs> it this was little a, girl. And he responded so generously and so openly and so lovingly to the idea of, even though as hurt as he was to have felt this lie for as long as he did, to believe something for as long as he did, that was not truth. Mm-hmm. He embraced the role of Godfather too, for yeah. whatever that whatever that means, and that, that really was did. that was beautiful. With, yeah, yeah, without 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 skipping a beat, the way that you told it to me, which I just thought was yeah. like, I just thought that was so beautiful. So, and w- I, one thing that's always been fascinating for me on this entire journey is that I started out to to fill in the story, and along the way, I've met people. We we have a film about this, right? Like mm-hmm. we we talk about lifeline. what lifeline. We talk about what family means and what 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 a, what the true understanding of what a lifeline is and 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 to, and to share in the love of those around us and 
and how blessed we are to do that. And that comes from this feeling of hurt and loss as, as, as with as much love that I was raised with in my adopted family, there was still that void of not knowing self and trying to fill in what that story is. Who were these people that had that night of passion 50 years ago that created me? Yeah. And And where did they come from? Right. And with you saying that, Jason, it's like as, as parents and storytellers, we know that we have some work ahead of us. You know, the way that, the way that I see it, like we're the miners of truth of our own story. You and I are parents. We have our own kids now. We have a responsibility to these little ones who are (laughs) everything we are and everything that came before us and everything that will come after us. You know, I mean, they, they, they are truth. They are our origin story, you know, and we are their identity. They are ours because they, they are ours. We are complete. I mean, you are complete and and I know I'm related to you. I belong to you. You belong to me. And that's our truth. That's, that's what I'm coming to realize is our identity, even as the questions keep coming. You're right. Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and the, the love uh, and patience and kindness as we can go along these journeys of discovery of identity are always appreciated and really never ending because we could keep asking these questions about ourselves for as long as we live. And, and I'm one to say we should. Yes. I agree. So whenever you're ready, you can take that 23 and me test and <laughs> deep dive into, into, in, into your own. Uh, Maybe but, that will but, be your 50th birthday present, Jason. <laughs> Well, I, I think that brings us to our guest tonight. We have friends that work, live, and breathe in the adoption space. They bring people together to create new truths, new legacies, new roots, circles of completion. They are the Fortners, the old fashions of adoption. Mm-hmm. Shall we give them a call for their cocktail confession? Let's do it. Hi guys! Hi Hank and Sue Ann Fortner. How you guys doing? Hey, good to see you guys. Hey. You guys. We are so happy to have you here. And for those who are listening right now, Hank and Sue Ann, we we go to school together. And I knew, and they maybe they don't know this. Maybe this is too much that I'm expressing right now. But I knew that when I met them, I was like, oh my god, these people are cool. We haven't had as much time to connect because you know, of global COVID pandemic and, and this, everything. But, yeah. but we did spend some time in a cabin playing adult uno Wait, and i was like oh man that's right jason what you should, seen that, you should see her face when we were like <laughs> hey, we want to play adult uno and she was like uh what did i just get asked by these people so just, i think like, we're gonna spend this entire people. episode talking about adult uno what, what when no. when was this that's, that's it another does, episode yeah, it didn't occur to me i was like man she was really like kind of weirded out i was like maybe <laughs> not everybody likes uno and i realized adult uno sounds so <laughs> yeah, it's it's so yeah it sounds like something crazy can happen <laughs> welcome to lager lane spirits our podcast it's great to have you guys on um and one of the reasons that uh we wanted you guys to have here to be here is because, yeah. you know, part of the the podcast is about origin stories. And so 
in it, we, we talk about um, adoption and we talk about like where we began and where does the history begin and, and you know, what are the stories around that? And um, we instantly thought of you when we thought about like, you know, people have heard us speak. And so now we want to be able to have other listeners like hear someone else's perspective on that. Um, and we and, thought of no better couple than you guys. And we'd love to hear you guys explain a little bit about your company, your, your adopt together. I love your story. And I love your, uh, how open you guys are about adoption, because as you know, adoption is a huge part of our life and a huge part of our, just really is a part of our story as a family. We started a charity when I was, uh, on my 30th birthday, we launched it. So Anne was pregnant with our first daughter. And we launched Adopt Together, which is essentially the world's largest um, still. And it was the world's first crowdfunding platform for families who are going through the adoption process. So we are a kid starter, as people have joked and called us. We're a Kickstarter for adoption. We're a nonprofit crowdfunding platform. So if you're donating to a family, you get a, a tax deduction for a donation to families. You get to donate to a fund that then helps families fund their adoptions. And since we launched on my 30th birthday, I'm about to be 40, which is the uh, just a just a, an eye opener, you know, like a little bit of a of a hello. Um, <laughs> 40 in January, so that'll be our 10th year, uh, and we've helped a little over 6,500 families raise about 25 million dollars. Wow. So it's been an amazing run to watch wow. how many adoption stories we've gotten to be a part of, and really how many adoption stories that all the donors have been a part of. That's extraordinary. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was, I went over your website again and I was just, I was so taken aback. I was like, wait a minute. I think they, I think they maybe it was like eight or nine people <laughs> and that you had, your family had fostered like yes. 36 children from, from all of these different countries. And so like your understanding, you know, as a family and, and, and a different understanding, such a unique understanding and a huge platform of how we build family, how we create family. Um, and what and what family means, right? The, I've explored in, in, in my exploration as someone who was adopted and, 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 and raised in, in, in the Midwest. I was, I was born in Nebraska and raised all, all over Illinois and Minnesota. You say 40, I'm, I'm 50 in, in August. Um, oh, hello. 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 That's a real number right there. That is a real number. It's a big one. It's a number. You're ready for adult Uno. You're ready. <laughs> Officially. You're ready enough for adult Uno. That's like, uh, you might even graduate to like, you know, yeah. whatever the next version of Uno is. <laughs> the, the exploration of what family means through the adopted uh, adoption lens means the world to me. Yeah. I've, I've lived it for almost half a century. I've written uh, a film about it uh, uh, that will that, that we'll be rolling out later on this year. Um, it, 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 it means the world to me and I know it means the world to you both as well. So we're thrilled to have you here. Well, glad to be here. Uh, I I'd love to raise a glass as we do on Lager Lane Spirits and just do a welcome cheers with a nice little clink before yeah, we start on up. It. I'm ready. If you guys don't mind, we're going to launch in right away with, with our first question. So I'm wondering if you guys are ready for your Lager Lane Spirits cocktail confession. We're ready. Yeah. Oh, we're confessing. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot to get off my chest, so yeah. I don't yeah. know how much time you have, but I got a lot. I, I can't please you, so, take us away. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, what has been your search for identity? What's it been like for you? That's a loaded question. That's a that's a five part series right there. 
Hence um, a nice cocktail to yeah. help us navigate. <laughs> My parents immigrated to the United States from Korea and my aunt came first and kind of helped pave the way for all the siblings to come one at a time. And eventually everyone from my dad's side immigrated to LA. So I was born in LA, you know, less than a year after they immigrated. And my dad came with $400 in his pocket and can still talk about that feeling of landing in LAX and seeing the city. And my dad grew up in a little village in Korea, like a teeny tiny town. Where the Olympics were. That now hosts the yeah. Olympics. But when he was growing up, um, the Winter Olympics, but when he was growing mm -hmm. up, you know, they used um, cans for balls, you know, to play ball. And they didn't have windows on their homes. They had plastic. The, the paper. They would put windows. like, they would tape yeah, like, paper yeah. on to heat the heat in. And then if something happened and it tore, the whole house would be freezing cold. Like he grew up that primitive almost in this terms of the, the the city that he grew up in. And then kind of landing in LAX, seeing the expanse of the city wow. and having $400 and not knowing really that much English. So I um, very much grew up with that as the backbone story of us. You know what I mean? Um, parents who were learning English, who didn't have any real understanding of the culture and trying to forge this life for their kids and my mom not having any of her family here newly married and you know having her kid and so it was very much you know me having to navigate as a kid school and explaining that to my parents and how it works and you know having to kind of translate and navigate here's what we do and here's how it works you know so I remember being in kindergarten having kids ask me why I looked the way I did and my kind of my first awareness conscious awareness of being different and how to answer someone's curiosity about that yeah. bringing Korean food to, to as my lunch to school and the shame that kind of came up as I realized, oh no, oh no, 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 no. This is not what you're supposed to bring for lunch, you know? And my mom, you know, laboring over this food, but me just wanting Wonder Bread. Right. Um, you know, and then middle school, having someone ask me, why can I not see where your eyelashes start? Meaning because I don't have the eyes where you can see kind of the fold. Right. Why, why can't I see where your eyelashes are? You know, just kind of those very obvious direct confrontations with identity in terms of physical, you know, my first, my first kind of exploration was the physical part, the part that people could see and trying to navigate that. Yeah. yeah that's not a microaggression. That's an aggression. <laughs> It's, it's curiosity mixed with, you know, and, and we were in LA, so it's not like I was the only Asian student, but it was still such a minority at the time, you know, and then in college, really trying to figure out how to navigate not being Korean enough and not being American enough, mm. not having that sense of not fitting in in either world and mm. not quite be accepted in either world. So we moved to Korea when I was... 10 for two years my dad got mm. transferred for work and it's um crazy to be 10 and land in korea go to a, a foreign school and to feel an immediate connection 
and a sense of identity and home and belonging in this country I've never been in. Mm. Mm. And simultaneously be yelled at by the cab driver for speaking English and not speaking Korean and not being proud of my language and my culture and being chastised, you know, as kind of this older, elder generation to the younger generation, you know? And this is in 1988 where you still couldn't get peanut butter in Korea. It was on the black market. And wow. so it was just such a crazy juxtaposition to feel I don't have words, but I totally identify that these are my people and yet I still don't belong. I finally look like everybody, but I'm still not them. You know, I remember being at the mall and with my family and my sisters and I kind of talking loudly as you would as, you know, kids and then just realizing everyone on the escalator has gone silent and is staring at us because we were such a novelty back then of Korean kids mm-hmm. who are speaking English yeah. and realizing, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not like them. I'm very different from them. And yet I still felt that in America because I looked different. You know what I mean? I, I, I actually relate to your story on so many different levels just by being Filipino and being black. And, and I remember, I remember when I was a kid, um, my mom and my dad sent us to where my dad is from in Macon, Georgia. And I remember, you know, and so I'm going from Arizona where mostly I'm only seeing white people. And then they flew us there. And I remember being in Macon, Georgia and going, I, I've never seen so many black people in my life. And it was the first time that I was like, oh, I'm not black like them. Mm-hmm. I'm not black enough. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. I'm not. And I, it was the first time like in Arizona, I am people, I could tell that people saw me as a black Black. person, Mm -hmm. even though, you know, I'm always holding the hand of my Filipino mom, wherever Mm -hmm. I went. Mm -hmm. And then, and then feeling like this sense of home. Cause when I went to the Philippines for the first time, when I was like 18, my mom, you know, bought the tickets for all four of us to go back to the Philippines and to go to her town, not in Manila. You know, this is where like the economics and the socioeconomics kind of go. Like we didn't go to the big cities. My mom is from the province. And so, which is very different, you know, um, which is probably, was probably a lot like where your dad came from. Her home, similarly to how you were describing it. Yes. uh, Yeah. We've been there a couple of times. So it's, it's interesting. And me and feeling like, oh, getting here and going, oh, this is the part of me that's Filipino. Like, oh, this is where Mm -hmm. like all kind of settled in, like where I begin to like identify with who my mom is and where I came from and to figure out like what parts of me um, come through the Filipino culture and then what the parts of me that come through, you know, uh, African-American culture. So those are the parts of your story that I really connect with when you share the search for. Yeah. And then it kind of goes into kind of even subculture, right? Like um, there's a culture of Korean Americans in LA. We have our own subculture of being a Korean American LA person there's a certain like way that korean americans speak in la a certain lilt in their voice and how Mm. they say words and sentences and not quite fitting in with though that community either uh i remember i went on a on a blind date i talked i got set up with someone We, we talked on the phone we met up at this restaurant on the west side and he said you know if i hadn't known you're korean when we were talking the phone i would have just thought you were a white girl so I said, oh, t- please tell me, what does a Korean-American person sound like? Obviously, that 
lasted one day. But kind of <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about laughing, but that's, yeah, that, I could imagine how that could have ended. And it was definitely one of the opening questions. <laughs> that was awkward. Um, but again, kind of confronted with that. What does it mean to sound white? What does it mean I didn't sound yeah. Korean? How do you sound Korean when you're Korean American? You know, um, I said, are you talking about the way that, you know, this, how they talk, how we talk, and I don't talk like that. And, you know, it just goes even to multiple more nuanced layers even of subculture and identity, even within being the umbrella of being Korean, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The Americanization of, of, of us all, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I, I was adopted in the Midwest. I, I'm of, my biological roots are German and West African slash Nigerian. And uh, I was raised by a white family in the Midwest. I'm a light skinned mixed race black man. And I identify with this as well because I was too, I was way too light to be black and on the South side of Chicago. And I certainly was too dark to be white any, mm-hmm. anywhere else <laughs> in Chicago. And so uh, I identify strongly with the uh, pulls and tugs of what it means to be, to butt up against, well, to be othered basically, right? To butt up against the dominant culture and, and to try to navigate and find your way through it. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting too, and probably not typical, but as the, I'm the white guy on the podcast, yes. who <laughs> can resonate bizarrely. Jason is also white. I'm just letting you know, like we've got two. He's biracial. Uniquely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm just saying you, you might look at us and be like, oh, okay. Like, and I think I get that at work, I get that in my business. I work in music, and so I work around rap music, and I work around a very diverse group of people that I think might think that. But I was mm-hmm. raised by a white family in the Midwest, uh, same as you. Mm-hmm. But I was raised in a state-certified foster home. Um, we fostered over 36 kids over a wow. seven-year period. Uh, my parents have adopted eight kids from six different countries. So at any given moment, at any given grocery store in the Midwest, which is in Dayton, Ohio, which is either white, black, or Asian. Those are the kind of your only, and then there's Indian doctors in certain neighborhoods. Like it's literally- I went to Middleburg in Springfield, Ohio. I, 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 I know, I know your, I know your oh, good. I went to Cedarville, which is right around Springfield. And I worked on a helicopter as a medic and we were based out of Springfield. So All I right. knew exactly med flight was my right. Saturday, Saturday job. Uh, but at any given moment, at any Kroger or Cub Foods, I would have my little brother on my shoulders who was Chinese, and he had a double cleft lip and palate, so his mouth is wide open. And then I would have my little brother who's black holding my hand, my little sister who's Bolivian holding my other hand, uh, leading the charge be my little sister who's in charge, who's you know white, and my biological sister who looks like me. So it's like a very we were just people would look at us and they'd just be like, "Is this some kind of program?" Like what? What is going on here? And this is just us on a Saturday. Like I, it didn't have any, I didn't see it as different. I didn't see right. it as unique, but I would have these moments where I would see people see us. And that's when I realized, oh, my family is really, really different, right? Like mom, my mom did not believe in sending us to school. She didn't want us to go to school. She wanted us to stay home. She wanted to homeschool. She felt like school was going to keep our thinking too binary and it wasn't going to teach us to see the world differently. Not only was I at a Walmart on a Monday at 10 a.m., which no other kid was, but we were surrounded by different ethnicities that other people were not used to seeing. I think it was just that same sense of like, I resonate so much with when you say like, I didn't belong. Like we, I felt the corporate feeling. Like when I was seven years old, my mom pulled us aside and said, we're going to be foster parents. 
And I was like, cool, like, whatever, I'm seven. You guys do whatever you want to do. You're, <laughs> you know, like, my parents were like 28, I think, at the time. They're like, no, 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 we need you to be in the mix on this. You have to be in the center of this as well. And so I just took that on seriously. And so at any given moment, there'd be six, seven of us walking through a Walmart at 10 a.m. on a Monday, and people would go, all right, something here's happening. And I just always felt different. I always felt odd. I was odd when I was a kid because of my family makeup and who was at my baseball game and people. And I would meet people who were like only children. And I'd be like, your life must be so dull. You know, like, <laughs> what, what does a day look like? You just hang with your parents? Like, <laughs> what do you do all day? Like, I had at any given moment, seven or eight, ten brothers and sisters. I have ten, ten brothers and sisters now. There was always humans with us. So I didn't know, even though I was, we were homeschooled, I was so exposed to so many different lives and so many different people and so many different birth mothers in our home and so many different foster mothers in our home or biological birth mothers who were there when we were fostering and we would meet them in parks. And like, I was exposed to so many different broad cultures that I just, I didn't belong when we went to the black church when I was a kid. I didn't belong when I went to baseball because this, I didn't go to the school I didn't really fit in. As I got older, I became a pastor. So when you're a pastor, you really don't fit. Like you're the guy that's not sleeping around. You're the guy who's not getting hammered. So that didn't really fit as a 23-year-old in Los Angeles. Now I'm in now I'm in music business. I'm not from the music business. I like got into the music business. So I didn't grow up doing what these guys all did to get into the music business. So I think there is that sense. Like I really resonate, Jason, when you talk about other. I just think you kind of carry that with yourself of like, there is an other, and I hope now we're getting to a place in a culture where there is no in or out. It's just we're, we all, you're in by being other. There's so many of us now who've had an experience of not fitting in with our environment or yeah. I didn't follow all the, so you just go, man, everybody's other. Even though you might look at my life, you might look at me in five minutes and be like, oh, you've probably fill in the blank. It looks like I've fit into all my little circles, but it's been the opposite. I have found one place where I've been like, oh, cool. I have not even been to the moment like with Sue Ann had when she got to Korea and been like, these are my people. Uh, I, I feel that now when I walk into a studio with rappers, I work right. in music and then I uh, resonate with, does that make sense? Like I, I just it feel does. like no, it absolutely does. Of, like, the new world and new, like, new global citizen is, as a person who feels like I just find humans. That's what's shaking all the way to, to go, not to go political, but to go macro for a second. It seems like it's shaking all the way up into the political space here in the States right now, right? That, that, that there is this kind of last attempt to hold on to what this, whatever this is, while we all go, well, wait a second. We all have these various experiences that, that have, have navigated, that we navigated through our lives and in, in, in the spaces that we are in that don't represent what that is. And so yeah. let's recreate what this is. Hank, I got to ask you, man, I, I've, we've talked about this before, but I would love to hear from, from, from your lens, uh, if you don't mind sharing this. What made your parents do this in Dayton, Ohio? Yeah. yeah. What, what, what was that from your lens and from their lens, if you don't mind sharing? What was that about? What was that like? My mom and dad got pregnant when they were in college. And so being a Catholic family in the Midwest, we're having a wedding. Like that's like you don't really get engaged. You just get pregnant. That's sort of the way it goes. And so they got pregnant, got married, had a child, had another one, which was myself. So I had my sister and then me and then had my little brother and pregnancy was brutal on my mom. And so they said, Hey, we just need to, you know, my, my mom got her tubes tied when she was, had my third 
uh, her third child, which was my little brother. And she said in the recovery room, she just sobbed and just said, I was put on this earth to be a mother. I can't by any means, how could I have done this? What have I done? Even though that was really not healthy for her to have more children. And what's so interesting is my dad had found out a year earlier that his dad was adopted. And his dad came to him when he was pregnant with my little sister and said, hey, I just want you to know. My dad was 21, 22 at the time. He said, hey, I just want you to know I'm adopted. And I think he was saying something about there was a kid that had been born. My dad's cousin had had a child who had severe deformities and real trouble with the pregnancy. And he like pulled my dad aside as a dad and said, hey, just so you know, I'm adopted. We're not actually biologically related to your cousin. So don't you don't have to worry about it. And again, this is in the 19, mm. early, early 19, 1980s, 1970s. So th- there's not a lot of knowledge, except all you knew is if someone has trouble, we're all going to have trouble. It was like yeah. a, that was just the knowledge. So that was, yeah. a, that was the way my dad found out that his dad was adopted. And so he, on that moment, said he remembers telling, having that thought and telling my mom really is to comfort her, we're going to adopt. It's okay, we're going to adopt. My mom didn't know anyone adopted. She'd never been in that world. And my, and she, my mom said, okay. And that like solidified for her, we're bringing kids into our family. Well, that's how I'm going to continue to be a mother. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm going to bring, I'm, I'm, she's always said, I wanted to have a hundred kids. I want to have 10 kids. I'm, God put me on earth to be a mom. Like, this is what I want to do. And uh, turns out adoption is expensive and complicated, but foster care, Matt, we live in the city of Los Angeles. If you called the city of Los Angeles right now on a Friday evening and said, hey, we have our home study. We've been approved to be a family. They won't let you off the phone. They'll say, we have a child right now that needs a family and they will bring someone to your household. Like foster care is a need in every city in the United States. And there's over 500,000 kids in foster care in the United States, over a thousand of which just in Los Angeles County that are, are, are what's called available for adoption, which means the parental rights have been terminated and they are like looking for their forever home. So my mom made a phone call and literally within 48 hours, my little sister Hope was in our household. She was our foster child and she had fetal alcohol syndrome and her mom had all sorts of um, challenges that she was trying to face. And when, my, when Hope's mother, whose, whose name was Melissa, met my mom, she said, you're gonna adopt my baby. My mom's like, well, that's not really how this works. Like, this is a very, like, and it was complicated because it's foster care in the 80s. And my mom said, okay. And then thought that was how the adoption process worked. Like, there's no internet at the time. There's not even, like, a newspaper on this. And, like, the foster, the social workers started helping her. And we adopted my little sister, Hope, which was one of our first foster kids. And so my mom was like, oh, that's how it works. So we just, we fostered and fostered and fostered. And ev- almost every time tried to move to adoption and it just didn't, it wasn't, that's not always the case. And reunification is always a foster care's first, foster care is designed, right, as an in-between space to reunify families. So yeah. wherever that was possible, we would step aside and say, of course, like, absolutely. So that's kind of what that seven year period was for my family. And we discovered how the back and forth of foster care, by the time a kid in the United States turns 18 in the foster care system, if they age out, Mm -hmm. they've been in an average of 55 foster homes. So we watched that uncertainty happen to young children. And even as us as bio kids being in the household and realizing like, we can't have kids come in and out. I'd come down to the breakfast table and there would be somebody new at the breakfast table. 
And I'd be like, hey, who's this? Like, while I was asleep, someone else showed up. And you get a little jaded as a 10-year-old, 12-year-old, because you're like, well, what if I come down tomorrow morning and someone's not here, which happened also. And so... Which is very traumatic. It just is... say bye to so many siblings. It's just yeah. too much to, to, to... And my mom just saw it. That's a disservice to the kids to come into this household that's like a summer camp and literally looks kind of like Lord of the Flies. We didn't ever, like, eat dinner as a family. <laughs> we kind of just... There's open boxes of cereal everywhere. And what if someone ate, like nobody's, no, someone's blood sugar goes low. So fine, we'll feed you. Like it was very uh, summer camp. It was sandlot every day. And so yeah. to expose a child to that lifestyle and then have them leave wasn't healthy for us or them. And so that's when my parents decided to adopt. I wow. you know what I find wow. so interesting in terms wow. of identity and, and it actually teaches me a lesson. I'm definitely, I will, you know, and it's just the way that I walk through the world because I'm, you know, I'm a woman, I'm a, a woman of color and I'm trying to survive, right? Like if I, you know, seeing you, let's say seeing you step onto the campus of our school and seeing you, I would have never known anything, those things about you. I would have made right. so many assumptions because you're a white male right? about why, you know, you know, we go to an independent school. I've made so many assumptions about like, oh, and I just make them about every white person that comes on the campus <laughs> because that's, and I'm people just telling make assumptions you my truth. About people. That's what I do. I mean, yep. I have enough life experience to understand that what I've done is made an assumption. I don't know anything until I talk to you. Right. Do you know what that's I'm saying? The power, and of the, so, power of the story. Power yeah, of the I know. So, so it's okay. Yeah. I understand that that's part of life, that people make assumptions about someone else's identity and how they come into the world. But you have such a unique situation that is different than these kinds of assumptions that I make where I assume in an independent school setting that these other people that I see, you know, as white, maybe they're not, I'm just saying that's what we do. Um, that is much more varied and much more interconnected than, um, than what my assumption is. And so, so it proves to me in this kind of way that like the more, the more, as we are developing our identities and developing our children's identities or, or allowing them the space to have that um, as it will change over time, having all different kinds of people interacting in their lives, how that changes it. Like I know that for me being black, Filipino, uh, growing up in Arizona, visiting the Philippines, you know, being able to travel just a bit, like all of those things have affected me in a way that, that if I just said, oh, because the way the world sees me is that I'm a black girl. Like I had to define that for myself. And so, yeah. I mean, yeah. as you tell your story, I see, I see the world trying to tell you, you know, even with, with Sue Ann's story, like the world trying to tell you who you are and you trying to say, wait a minute. Yes, but no, you don't yeah. have it right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, is that what you see? Because that's not what I feel that's not who I am. And, and that constant struggle back and forth, just the way that our country is, um, created. Yeah. And growing up as a, as a white kid in the nineties, right. Like, or even early in the eighties when no, someone met me and had an assumption and then they tried to pull me aside and tell me a black joke. Mm. And I'm like, you don't know, like, my level of offense and like upset is as if you said it to a person of color, because my little brother who's in the car waiting for me during this baseball practice, or like the amount of things that you just go, you have no, 
And that's what I think reveals a person's assumption of who you are. I think that's when I realized like, oh, they think I'm like them. Like I'm this, I'm just a white kid from two white parents in some, you know, there's just a couple of, there's nothing wrong with that. Just you start to realize like, oh, people put me in that box. So they try to sneak in a joke thinking, oh, I'll laugh at this too. And here I am giving this kid like a nine minute speech Mm. on how inappropriate what he just said to a point where my baseball coach had to like pull me aside and be like, Hey, like they had to like break us up. Cause I was like, do you have any idea? Like I just was launching into this pontification of like what that little racist thing, like you may use the word earlier, Jason, like a microaggression. Like mm. I, that's just racist jokes. Like yes. you're saying that about my family, dude. Like that's aside from the fact that that's unhealthy and we won't get into your family. That's unhealthy for my family. Like, and I would just launch into those things. And so I think you're, you're totally right is you, you, you have these moments. I think when, when you're searching for your identity, where you see how other people see you and that's the like aha moment of like, Oh God, I, I feel different than that. And I resonate different than that. And I have different allegiances. I don't have whatever allegiance you're trying to build with me right now by telling this joke. That is not just to be clear. I'm not in your club right. and I would do my best to make sure they knew like that doesn't work for me. Hank, I identify that with, with that strongly because my brother and sister, my older brother and sister, blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, yeah. my sister is eight months older than me. We were raised as twins. They say they've told the same similar stories. My brother went yeah. to college in in Fort Worth, Texas, similar, similar stories, similar, like, hold up. You don't I'm not you don't know me and my family. So you better back up right now. We lived in the Philippines. Ironically, years later, we we met and I married into the Philippines and that's, that's connected. But my family lived in the, in Manila in 1980 and we took a child in. And so I'm, I'm identifying with what you were talking about in the foster space. The, uh, we had a younger boy who was about five or six. I was 10 who my family was considered, we were fostering while we were there. The mother stepped in and stopped the adoption from happening. Hmm. You can't talk to my sister to this day about this this child she she had she she tells me she was like jason i opened my heart up to you you're my brother i hope open my heart up to that boy too and then he's not he's no longer my brother how does that compute i identify with a lot of what has just been discussed here Mm -hmm. right now strongly Mm -hmm. okay that brings us to our second question (laughs) hold on can i I say one other one other thing about that because i think there's another i had to do both i had to play both roles right one is I'm yelling at my kid at a baseball field when I'm 10 years old because he told me a racist joke he thinks I'm going to think is funny. The next is I'm trying to explain to my little, to my 15 year old brother why he can't hide in the bushes and scare me in this rich white neighborhood in Naples, Florida. Because he sees me do it to my family. See, we used to have this joke. We walk around this town in Florida and I'll hide in the bushes and like pop out and scare them, which is like funny. And I'll tell him, I don't know how to explain this to you and try to explain that world to you. I, I can get away with that and you cannot. Mm-hmm. You can't be in someone's backyard and be tall and handsome mm-hmm. and black. It, mm-hmm. it, it's not that, and, and my little brother is like, what are you talking about? You, I just watched you do it. I'm you like, it. Yeah. let me mm-hmm. tell you the difference. And my, and my heart breaks into 50 pieces trying to explain to him, like, I know, but they'll respond to me differently in their backyard if they come outside and see me. They might even laugh with me. It's not safe for you. And I watch it with my little brother when I walk into a 7-Eleven and he walks into a 7-Eleven and I watch people keep an eye on him. 
And here I am walking around and I watch the different interactions and watch somebody ask him and challenge him when he's buying something, when he's touching something. And for me to walk over and again, give that person the speech they never thought that they didn't wake up that morning thinking they were going to receive. <laughs> but but you, does that make sense? And I don't know if Absolutely. your family had that, Jason, but I felt that you, you stand in the in-between in that world and you're like, I hate to, I can't explain this to you in a way and the world is broken in that way and having to explain that to your little brother and have him realize like, oh, that now him see, this is how other people see me. You know what I mean? Like, and I had to kind of guide him in that. I want to say that that's American, right? That this, that's an Americana element, but I had an experience uh, vacationing with my family, a step family and my uh, adopted family, which is a story for another uh, episode. But we, we were in Cabo in the mid nineties. We're mm-hmm. all college age and we're going to the Cabo bars in like 94, 95. And I'm trailing behind everyone. We had, had, a, had a big family as well. I was the youngest of three and then the youngest of seven. And so we were all on this big winter break trip. And we're all going to a bar, as you do in, on spring uh, winter break in, with your family in, 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 in Cabo. The Mexican police stopped me because they mm-hmm. thought I was trailing this family. Wow. And I had to, in my broken Spanglish, hablo un poquito, pero nada mucho. I had to let them know that they were my family, that I was, and, and it took me about 40, my family didn't clock that I was not there for whatever reason, which is another story, but because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. anything could have happened that night to me with the Mexican police. But finally I convinced them that I was indeed, that I was allowed to go into this bar wow. and I went in and proceeded to drink shot after shot of tequila just because that was messed up. What just yeah. happened. Yeah. And so those, yeah. those moments aren't just, yeah. I want to say it's like, oh, oh, America, but it's North America. It's, 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 it's a global problem. Yeah. I'm, you, know, sure. you guys, what I'm also interested in is you, you've had, you guys have this life experience and then like, how do we, you know, with our kids, like, how do we, how do we allow them the space to kind of be able to have these kinds of conversations um, and, and have them be on their search for identity while we're still trying to figure our shit out. You know, we're still trying to, yeah. as we go along and the world changes, we're constantly mm-hmm. trying to figure those kinds of things out um, because of what our kids teach us. You know, Jason has a story of like, you know, and when he was on the search for his identity and what that was like. So I kind of want him to share that with you guys in terms, because I'm also curious about, you know, all of these kids that were fostered and all these kids that, that your family adopted and, you know, what is it like for their journey to find identity, well, you know? And we had touched on, Hank, right before we, uh, we talked about this earlier and uh, these reveals, right? Uh, and I'm, I'm going to share a reveal. This episode revolves around the origin of us all, right? And mm-hmm. We're drinking an old fashioned because an old fashioned in my studies, in my bartending studies is one of the, one of the original cocktails. Mm-hmm. In origin, there is a starting point, mm-hmm. right? As an adopted child, I didn't know the starting point point mm-hmm. to try to make that kind of connection to why we're drinking an old fashioned. But I didn't know. I, I knew I was black and white. I was born in 1971, Lincoln, Nebraska. That was my origin story. My identity was built around being adopted for the longest time before I knew my, before I learned and gained knowledge of my own biological story. Yeah. I met my birth mother in 2002. I lost my adopted mom in the same year. My birth mother, and this is before Ancestry.com. This is before mm-hmm. 23andMe. This is before Family Tree and 
tree DNA, all of the African ancestry, all of the DNA tests that I now spit in vials for fun to get information from. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a hobby of mine now to, to gain all that information. But it's been, and I say that both tongue in cheek and seriously, because I've learned so much about my origin story from these websites. But I met my birth mother back in 2002 by driving to Lincoln, Nebraska, going to the Department of Health and Human Services, paying a $17 fee to open up my closed adoption papers. Mm. Wow. They they called my biological grandmother because my birth mother was a minor at the time. So her name was an information. The phone number was still the same, old Lincoln, Nebraska. She called my birth mother and said, he's looking for you. Mm -hmm. So I started a relationship with my birth mother. She told me the story. She told me her story of my origin story Hmm. 20 years ago. There was another man she was dating who, uh, before I was born, ended up going to serve in Vietnam. He came back four years later. She had moved. She had run away. She had moved to the East Coast, had gotten married, came back in the mid-70s with another child, her child, her daughter, and was raising her, her child. And so I had his name. And so that was my origin story. I reached out and connected eventually with him. He lives in Kansas. And this gentleman believed that story too, was told that same story too. Valentine's Day 2021, Ancestry.com, I get a message from a first, they list it in an algorithm that you can get as close as first cousin or someone, even a close relative. A lot yeah. of, I mean, I have like two of them. Everyone else is like fifth cousin, twice 18th removed, right? But this was someone as close as an aunt who okay. did not fit that story. 20 years, I believe the story that I was told. It turns out the story was a lie. My birth mother has, has, has admitted that. And we are communicating about what that lie was about, why that lie was. I'm having a, an interesting time processing what that is about because I was given up for adoption 50 years ago and then I was lied to 20 years ago. My biological father, who I found out this year, is the real father, the birth father, Mm -hmm. passed away in 2018. I met my the other gentleman who I now call my godfather because we become cool. We're like buds. Right. We're texting about sports, you know, seven years. We were commu- he's a he's a Chiefs fan. The Chiefs got really good. I'm a Bears fan. We're not that good. So we're you know, <laughs> so we he's like, you could be a Chiefs fan. I'm like, I know I want to, but it's a whole 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 thing about sports. <laughs> but so that is my big reveal in this episode mm. from an origin place and what this is about. And I'm grateful for the time to share this knowing the the impact and import and what this what this subject matter means to you both and your family. Yeah. It's just been a wild reveal. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why did you lie? What were you trying to protect me of? If that was it, you know, maybe, but then I don't want to wa- judge. I don't want to mm-hmm. walk in the shoes of a child 50 years ago who had a one night stand with a guy and I'm the product of, right? Mm-hmm. So exploring what that, origin means for me as a, as a man, as a father, as a husband. But that you also, that you would spend, you know, and as, as the wife of someone who's, <laughs> who's been, who's deep been diving on this in journey, this like yeah. experiencing the emotional investment in finding out who am I? And, and as a history major, part of our, and a our, storyteller too. Right. And part yeah. of our, our second question of the, of our cocktail confessions is like, 
and I'm curious, you know, how you guys deal with that, you know, you know, Wait, Hank. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry real quick. Yes, yeah, baby, before so we go into the second question, Hank, I was wondering if you, you, we had touched a little bit about a big reveal that you had, and I'm, I'm wondering if you would feel comfortable now sharing what we had originally started talking about earlier. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think, yeah. You know, when you talk adoption, it's so interesting that you, you know, and even what we've touched on on this podcast, which is people can look at you and see you in a certain way and make assumptions about you. But you can make assumptions about your own story. Like, Jason, you made assumptions because you're told this as a kid, right? I found out when I was younger, my mom would tell me adoption's been in our story for a long time. In 1929, my grandfather was adopted. My dad found that out. So on my dad's side, I've always known that there was adoption. But we've always tried to piece that story together because he had very little information. So about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, we started doing 23andMe. And recently I logged in because, you know, it tells you you have relatives. We found other relatives. We found cousins. So I just like logged in randomly. Haven't done it in years. I logged in two days ago. And I log in and I have, uh, it pinged that I have a cousin on my mom's grandfather's side. And I was like, that's where, where did that come? Because that's the only person in that whole chain. So on the other side, so on my grandfather's side, I found like 20 cousins and I've been messaging all of them trying to discover who is this woman, Pauline, who chose adoption for my grandfather? Who were her parents? Did she have other kids? Like, we don't really know. And she passed away before I was old enough to discover. So I she every, had a relationship with her son, actually. She used to follow my grandfather to school. Yeah. Yeah. When he was like in wow. fifth grade yeah. and wow. she would drive and just follow him. And he thought he was being stalked. <gasps> and then she stopped him one day she and called the house. asked for his phone number. And he like gave it to her, said he yeah. felt uncomfortable. His name was Chuck Charles. And so then he called the house. She called the house one day and said, I'm looking for Charles. And he said, this is me. This is in the thirties. And yeah. he said, she said, I'm your mother. I chose adoption for you when you were born. And I'd like to have coffee with you. Would you meet me downtown? And he said, yes. Didn't tell his adoptive parents. Because again, his adoptive parents had not told him that he was adopted. In the mm. 20s, that was very like, they were worried about their own self. They were worried about him feeling yeah. different. And so he personally kept that story to himself, maintained a wow. secret relationship with his, with biological, his biological mother. Until his adoptive parents died. And that's when he told his the rest of his family, Pauline is not just a friend of ours. She's actually my biological mother. Like he kept it a secret because he didn't want to hurt his parents. His sure. adoptive parents didn't want to communicate anything. So he just took the, all that on for himself. So we got a little bit of information. But to hear from all of these people, all these cousins say this is Hey, I've got this grandmother and I've got this grandmother. And for us to piece together Pauline's story over 23 Me has been amazing. Because even though I'm a bio kid, so I'm not adopted, but because your grandfather's adopted, and that's what I mean, Jason, sure. the, more, the more you dig in now, the more your kids won't need to. The more your yeah. kids can discover your story and your background. And I feel like I'm doing the things my grandfather has since passed, so I can't even ask him, hey, what was Pauline's mother's name? And what... How many kids did Pauline, like I'm finding out all of these things. Yeah. But even today, and this is my my reveal, is today I got a message from a gentleman named John on my family tree. And it sparked off where I said that that couple didn't have kids. Who is this person? And I messaged him and said, hey, I'm trying to decipher what's, you know, our family tree. 
And he said, well, I'm trying to decipher it too. My daughter got me on this. I've, I'm adopted. And he said, so I'm just an outsider looking in. Hope you can find what you're looking for. <laughs> and I messaged him and said, I, I don't want to pry into this stranger's life, but you're literally my cousin. And I'm trying to find out all the, I'm trying to map all this for my kids. And so we messaged probably 30 times today, comparing names. I'm texting my great aunt. I'm texting people going, do you know this person's name? And so it's just so interesting how even if you're not adopted, if adoption has touched your life, you're never the same. You'll always be in that um, story kind of recreation mode. Does that make sense? Or does that resonate with you where you're just going, deeply. I'm just trying to deeply. find out, you know? Deeply, deeply. I, I have an, my aunt, she, how, how my reveal happened is she uh, popped up as, a, as, as close as my aunt, literally on, on Ancestry.com. And this is in 2018. And I was, I was like, well, this doesn't make sense. You know, my, my birth father is Mike, you know, do you know yeah. what Mike Moore in your family line? She's like, no, I'm like, well, okay, we'll find it somehow. Right. Cause I didn't have, I didn't have reason to doubt the story I was told because right. Mike himself believed it. So I was like, okay, this is, this yep. is what it is. Well, it turns out that she's my, indeed my aunt and her brother, my birth father passed away in 2018. There's a family reunion in Florida on the panhandle next year that they're inviting me to. She's wow. like, if my parents had lived they and, and they knew you were there, we uh, they would have brought you in. You know, that's just how my parents were. My brother wow. was kind of, he said, kind of wild. He was running around. And this is the white family or this is the black family? Black family. So wow. my whole search revolved around going out to find my black side. Really, as, as somebody who was raised by a, yep. a white family, I was like, yeah, y'all are white. I love you. You're great. But I got an Afro and, and dark skin. What's up? So right, I had to right. and find my black side. I've it, My first location was my German Jewish mother, which was wonderful in a reveal, but not my black side. Right. And so I kept searching and 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 found first this first gentleman who was a black guy who was her boyfriend at the time. Wow. Who believed the story. So they were intimate for all the various obvious reasons. But then I found this new side. So his people were from like Louisiana and Oklahoma. So I did a whole deep dive historically wow. into how you get from Louisiana to Oklahoma. But then I found out that this dude was from my, my biological father is actually from South Carolina and Georgia. Wow. Which, he said, he which said is Georgia. where her dad's My dad is from, from Macon, Georgia. And I said, Jason, we better not be related. We better not. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. To our audience, we're not. Uh, we yeah, are married. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but so, yeah, the, what you just said, Hank, resonates deeply uh, within me for all the various reasons. Like mm -hmm. what you were commenting on, if what, what what hit me so strong was even if you were are a biological child, and adoption has touched you somehow, it has touched you deeply and profoundly. Yeah, without a doubt. Thanks, Ian. This was so awesome. Really, truly. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I always love the conversation. That's why we're so excited to do what we're doing right now. I just appreciate all the vulnerability that you guys brought to it, all the stories that you've told, which maybe you've told a million times, maybe you've only told them, you know, to us right now, but they feel so very, very true and very real. Thank you guys so much for having us. Cheers, my friends. This was, this was beautiful. We, we, we thank you both. Love you both very much. This was awesome. What we're made of, who we come from and why, 
are what little boys and girls hold on to, because it is these truths we hold to be self-evident. Please join us for part two of our three-part series on origins. In part two, we interview Channing Power as she shares her origin story of how she became a mom. This podcast is produced by the Logger Lane Group. We would like to thank Logger Lane Spirits co-producers and writers, Courtney Oliphant and Pepper Chambers Ceresi, co-producer Matthew Ceresi, podcast coordinator Amanda Dinsmore, sound designer David B. Marling, The Launch Guild, and Toby Gad for his original piano improvisation. also like to thank podcast haven and our guests the fortners of adopt together remember to grab our old-fashioned recipe and show notes by going to lagralanespirits.com and we'll see you next time and if you love the cocktail or the episode make sure you rate review and subscribe on apple podcasts or wherever you listen